se están haciendo apenas todos estos policies en que qué significa intoxicated o fit for duty, ¿no? Porque el otro día alguien me preguntaba, bueno, y entonces, si llego yo, este, marihuana a mi trabajo, ¿qué? Así, pues, es legal, ¿no? Entonces, se me hace muy raro que apenas hasta ahorita, que ya es inminente, Ajá. se esté empezando a discutir eso. Es eso. Sí. Ajá, esa es era una preocupación grande. Eso The concerns expressed by Berenice regarding the legalization of cannabis for recreational consumption in Canada represents one of many concerns shared by Canadians who were unsure of how legalization was going to affect their day-to-day -day lives. In this episode, we will discuss the legalization of cannabis in Canada while drawing parallels with the legalization of cannabis in Uruguay and hopefully address some of these concerns. This episode was recorded on October 15th, so two days before the legalization of marijuana. So it may be interesting for you to see how the matters that we have discussed have unfolded in the days since then. My name is Cassandra, and thank you for joining us for the Cafecito this Tuesday, October 30th. Everybody, we are here at the LAS office, and I've got with me Steve, and I'm a fourth year student as well, I'm studying a double major in economics and Latin American studies. All right, and Micaela, I'm a second year student studying uh, psychology and semiotics. Perfect. Um, and I guess just a little background information about us. I'm from Chile, second generation. My parents are from there, but I'm born and raised here. We've got Steve, who is from Ecuador, uh, who is an international student. And then Micaela, you are born in Uruguay, not born in Uruguay. <laughs> Explain to us your situation. I was born in Miami, and I lived there for around 15 years, and I finished high school in Uruguay. Uh, both of my parents are Uruguayan, but my dad's family is uh, Chinese. All right, perfect. Um, and, well, why are we here today, guys? We're here to talk about um, the upcoming um, legalization of marijuana that's going to happen here in Canada, October 17th, um, and basically discuss the parallels with the um, legalization of marijuana in Uruguay about five years ago, legalized in December 2013 over there. Okay, so my disclaimer is that I might be Uruguayan, and I consider myself to be Uruguayan, but I lived a long time in Miami, and I'm only 20, so when all this went down, I was really young, and I don't think so conscious of, like, the social change and social movement. As well as in Uruguay, um, I kind of live in a social bubble, and I think that's a reality that, you know, we need to be conscious of. It's very stigmatized for women, at least in my friend group, in my generation, in my school, um, to smoke marijuana. So that does sort of change my perception, shape my perception, and limit my perception on the real situation in Uruguay. So that's my disclaimer. Um, and most of the information I have is more anecdotal than I think factual, because it's stuff that I've talked with my friends who have been able to sort of escape the bubble. Right. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Uh, By no means are Steve and I more qualified than you are to talk <laughs> <Yeah>. about this. <laughs> um, but everyone's qualified to have an opinion. 
So that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> All right. So real quick, spurring the facts about the Uruguayan legalization. So it happened in December 2013. It was this very progressive law that was kind of introduced in the midst of Pepe Mojito's um, presidency, along with several other progressive legislation, such as, you know, he legalized abortion, gay marriage, and I guess marijuana legalization was just kind of the thing that made sense to follow. Um, and that's what happened. So Uruguayans could purchase up to 40 grams per month for about a dollar a gram. And they can purchase marijuana via three different ways. The most common one is pharmacies. You can get mar- your, your weed at the pharmacies. Um, there's also these registered cannabis clubs. These clubs can have no more than 45 members and cannot dispense more than 480 grams to a single member in a given year. Uh, and then the third way is you can grow it yourself, but you're restricted to a maximum of six plants per household. Um, and, Michaela, would you be able to tell us how this law has played out in the last few years? Like, what was the reception and what was some what were the flaws in it that you well considered? I think, um, especially like being Uruguayan and traveling a lot, so people like don't know much about Uruguay, so they'd be like, oh, soccer or oh, weed, and they sort of constructed this idea that Uruguay was becoming the next Amsterdam, and there was a lot of pushback on behalf of like the people around me for it not to become that. Like, they it's like, fine, legalize it, but we don't want to become, like, the weed capital of Latin America. Um, And that was a big attitude, and I think a lot of people from the outside were sort of thinking this was what was going to happen, and, like, Uruguay is going to be, like, this hot spot for tourists, and I think, actually, you can't purchase weed if you're not Uruguayan. Yeah. Um, So, basically, it gets legalized in 2013. There's a lot of buzz, and I think it's more of a, like a political construction of sort of like an image that they wanted to to show the world. Um, and then I think it's only been in the last two years, a little less, that they've implemented it at a pharmacy level. And that's been interesting from what I've heard. Uh, I have friends who who buy it from the pharmacy and, and there's like a shortage. Sometimes you really can't get what you want. Um, like there's two main strains from what I've have understood like indica and sativa and you kind of get what they have um so there's definitely not enough supply to meet the demand and yeah it's cheap it's cheaper than what's on the i guess you could say illegal market but it's also weaker so you do have that trade-off um but yeah it, going back to the whole idea of it being like amsterdam i know that when you go to a dispensary in Amsterdam, you have like the different strains or, well not a dispensary, a coffee shop. Um, and it's pretty, I would say legit and professional. And from what I've understood of how it works, works in Uruguay, it's not like you, you pick and choose. You know, they have it, you buy it, they don't have it, you go home. Right. Um, so that's interesting. So do you think that this was a legislation that was passed mostly to project a image of Mujica and his administration to the international community rather than to Uruguayans themselves? Yeah, I think it was a really big like political move because we were the first country to legalize marijuana and and that that sets you apart internationally, regardless of what like 
the people are saying in Uruguay and everything. And yeah, of course, it was also a political decision, like anything, right? It's not unique to his political party, but um, he does appeal to like the younger, the younger masses with all the other policies that he's implemented. Um, he's left-leaning. So yeah, I think it was a very calculated decision. Um, and there's a lot of buzz around it and there continues to be, but at the end of the day, it's not, I, I don't think that's how it was felt. I can also imagine that if a legislation is birthed out of this desire to project a certain image about your government to the outside world, um, if you're the government in charge of passing that legislation, you're more worried about doing it, about doing it quickly, getting that number one spot before somebody else does it, then which um, undermines a bit or curtails the process of really thinking through how does le- how the legislation will be implemented and how the whole thing would play out in reality. Do you feel as though there's some truth to that? I think so, yeah, especially because like the whole pharmacy thing started around two years ago or a little bit less and it's been legal for a while now. Um, and there was always a huge argument like who's going to sell weed and how is it going to be controlled and are the farms going to be owned by the government or are they going to be like, privately owned and controlled and overseen. So, you know, I think those, I don't really know that much about policy making. That's really not my, like, it's not really what I focus on at college, but um, that kind of sounds like stuff that you need to be considering a lot before you put this in motion, right? Um, and that's not the case. And I know they had issues with banks because basically what happened is that there's international banks that will accept money from pharmacies, but um, technically marijuana is illegal in many countries. It's considered drugs. So if they were to accept the money um, that they received from selling marijuana, that would be illegal. So like they had a huge financial issue. like. Pharmacies couldn't really sell weed because they couldn't put that money in a bank because a bank, a bank would consider that illegal money. They'd consider it drug money. So that was a huge issue. Um, and that's something, it's like, how do you not think of how to finance such a huge enterprise, right? And how is that something that you completely just forget to think about? It It's weird, and I don't know to what level this has to do with just like policy making and like the bureaucracy of it, or if this is something just because it was rushed, because they wanted to be the first ones. So I don't know, it's stuff to consider. Um, And yeah, like once again, I think a lot of people thought that after it was gonna be legalized the year after you'd go to Uruguay and there's gonna be like sort of a red district, like in Amsterdam, and you'd go into a coffee shop and you'd smoke, and it's, it's not like that at all. And there is a public presence of weed, like you can be in a park and you might smell it. Um, but it's not like this crazy, you know, we're all hanging out at a cafe smoking joints. Like, it's that's not what it's like at all. Right. There's not this ever-constant kind of fog of right. Which marijuana exists in smoke Amsterdam. around the city. Right. Do you think it's fair to say that Canada has a stronger weed culture leading up to this legalization than Uruguay did? I think so, and I think we're also living in a different time, right? Um, Like, 2013, it wasn't that long ago, but I think there's, like, a different consciousness around marijuana, Um, you know, with, like, 
United States legalizing it um, and having like dispensaries and it being legal for not just medical purposes like I think that's also carries some weight especially it being United States right um, so yeah I think there is a stronger weed culture at least in Ontario or at least in you know not even Ontario Toronto because I really don't know what Ontario is like I feel like there's like more consciousness about like having marijuana legalized here in Canada but that consciousness for me that kind of contributes more towards the economic aspect of the market I feel like that mm-hmm. contributes to like thinking about how to implement like who's going to produce who's going to sell how we're going to regulate the market of marijuana while I see that there's a huge consciousness in the population in, in Uruguay when it was implemented that I feel rather that consciousness was towards the consumer I feel it was more to like why I want marijuana to be legal why I want marijuana to be available from like a public uh, supply so I feel like it's there is consciousness in both countries but like I feel like here in Canada I feel like it has contributed more towards like the planning of of the market right like the, the, the strategies that the government has to consider when implementing this while in Uruguay it's been like from the other perspective from the consumer's perspective I do agree that the argument in Uruguay was very much surrounded by like a moral compass a moral framework like why are we legalizing weed from like is it good is it bad is it good for your health is it bad for your health I think like mm-hmm. that battle in Ontario or at least in Toronto is like over okay. it's like, yeah it's more of a like well is it gonna be part of LCBO Mm-hmm, or is it going to mm-hmm. be privately owned? Like, it's more of that friction. Yes. Right. And I feel as though here it's been very rushed in certain aspects of the policymaking process. For instance, there's a few regulations that are set out um, by the Cannabis Act. For instance, you can, what is it, you can own up to four plants, something like that. Uh, you can possess up to 30 grams of dried legal cannabis or equivalent in, in non-dried form in public. Um, up to 30 grams yeah you can share up to 30 grams of dried cannabis or equivalent with other adults but the who gets to sell and distribute is left to um, provincial jurisdiction so they get to get Mm -hmm. the side and Ontario was in this limbo because you know we had the liberal government Kathleen Kathleen Wine's liberal government saying okay so we're gonna do this sort of extension of the LCBO and then Doug Ford comes in and he completely flips everything and he goes, no, actually, this is going to be part of the private sector. I guess it's through licenses now, right? Like like issuing licenses for certain uh, private businesses to start. But it's all of these things that have been very last minute. For instance, also the um, test that police officers have to use to detect THC has just been finalized like about a month ago and it's the saliva test where they can detect... Um, t- something like THC in your blood that has been introduced up to six hours earlier, something like that. I'm getting the sense that we're going through the same process of rushing the legalization to um, project that image and also to project that image to Canadians about mm-hmm. Trudeau's government since this was such a big thing when he was campaigning, right? Um, no, and I... I met someone who works at a dispensary a super illegal dispensary like 
they ask for ID and you go in. And I was like, okay, so that's interesting because what are you guys doing after it's legal? Because what I read online is that any of those dispensaries that exist now after October 17th, like they can't sell weed anymore. Like that's like super illegal, whatever that it, it means. It becomes actually illegal, yeah, like kind it, of. Yeah. I don't even, I like, it's still legal now. Exactly. Um, but basically I'm like, okay, so like, what are you going to lose your job? Like, uh, like, I don't know. Do you even have benefits? Like as an employee, yeah. like, I, I don't know. And he's like, no, what we're doing is that we're reapply. We're applying for a license through a different name. So even like this sort of idea of like, oh, we're going to punish the people who did things wrong before the law was put in place isn't really even controlling for these things and it's it's not happening Mm -hmm. and i'm I'm like oh because i think there's even a thing about selling online yeah for the next few months Mm -hmm. and i was like oh so are you guys gonna like move from a a, like a locale wherever they're located to i don't know to some just i don't know mailing things and they're like no no we're gonna try to stay here you know so it's like i think i don't know if this is like doug ford or like who it is but they have left a lot of cracks for these already existing dispensaries who have been working illegally, right? Um, to sort of continue doing what they're doing. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's like a reality, right? And they're bending the law and they have been bending the law. Um, so, yeah. Did you want to add anything, Steve? Well, I just feel like throughout the conversation, I, I find like several questions like to you guys and to myself also about like the process of like implementing such a policy i feel like as everything like there there needs to be a process like that like i feel like it's not gonna be possible to like take into account every single detail of like implementing uh and 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 legalizing marijuana so i feel that this is like what exemplifies what i'm seeing now like what has happened throughout the time that uh, marijuana has been legal in in uruguay I feel like all those things can be taken into account for future um, policy implementations like this one uh, happening uh, soon in in Canada. I feel like that uh, provides more feedback on like how to connect like the legalization of marijuana to like other aspects of like lifestyle of people in general and also like that have to um, that are related somehow to like uh, their jobs and their health services. And in general, the economy itself, like uh, as we were saying, for instance, about the banks and like who's like, uh, where are gonna people save their money if like banks still have that issue, right? Or like, uh, how how how's the data like gonna be? How are the data gonna be like managed if you register for that, and then you're also like aware of like that anyone can just access the data and like that can affect your uh, work, etc. I feel like that has like that's a pro for me that's a process that has to come like on the way because at the beginning and like these are like these are some words that Mujica said in like uh, some like videos that I was watching of it and etc. I feel like like that process is necessary and you have to keep in mind that like the the, the black market and or, or the legal market is not gonna clear out like it's not gonna disappear just because of the legalization of marijuana and all like it's it's obvious right like it's because of these facts that like the government didn't consider or didn't take into account like since the beginning that that you can realize that reality like you just have to keep working on that right like you just have to keep working on, on like policy making and like 
kind of uh, to address like several situations that people once this policy comes into place start facing like in order to like deal with those issues right so i feel like it's a necessary process i don't know if you either no yeah i listened to a podcast i think he was a professor at lsc but don't quote me and he talked about like the challenges of like criminalizing marijuana because the issue is that like it's a pretty harmless like at a buyer and seller level we're not talking about production and everything that goes behind that you know it's a pretty harmless crime and they're consenting adults who buy weed so how do you even stop that when there's people who are like no 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 i'm buying this i'm not gonna like rat out my dealer because i want something from them and there's not a huge negative impacts to smoking marijuana Mm -hmm. well that's arguable but it's not the same i would say like addiction and all of other drugs yeah the issue with marijuana is that the drug itself isn't as harmful relative to other drugs but there's this huge stigma around people who smoke weed they become potheads um they become shaggy from scooby-doo and so a lot of people uh, a lot of uruguayans were saying that all this legislation did was really legalize the stigma or eradicate the stigma in a way but in another way keeping it alive because it also forced uh, marijuana users to register themselves and who where does that data go who gets access to that data nobody knows like if an employer is having an interview with you can he look up your name and see yourself on this on this data bank and that was something that a lot of weed smokers became really angry about. And um, a reason why this legali- uh, legalization has received backlash from both sides, from opponents to the weed industry, to the weed culture, and then from people living in it. Yeah, and, and I didn't know that, but I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's also maybe one of the challenges of using the argument like, oh, if we legalize weed... Um, we're going to minimize the back trade, right? Like, because, yeah, if you don't put other policies in place to, like, sort of fight against that stigma, no one's going to want to become registered. Like, if that information can be leaked or it is accessible or it is public knowledge, like, I don't know a lot of people who'd be like, oh, okay, instead of buying weed from this person I know, I'm going to go and sign up and have my information, you know, be vulnerable. I think it's also, like, the idea, um, like, I've I've talked about this with some friends, like, do people even care anymore? Like, and, and, like, will your employer really fire you for you being registered as a weed smoker? And it's sort of, like, I think we're in that really confusing time in which we have to negotiate these things. So either put policies in place to protect from those stigmas or, or I don't know, or not use the argument that, oh, if we legalize this, people are going to register and they're going to, like, minimize the legal trade because that's, I don't, I don't think that's realistic, right? And a lot of people said that about, like, the quality of weed in Uruguay, the ones that they were selling. Like, the quality was apparently lower. And I don't know how much of this is an urban myth uh, because it's the whole, like, oh, because someone else, is, the government's controlling it, the THC must be lower, blah, blah, blah. But if that were the case wouldn't you just buy weed from the person you've been buying weed all this time, right? So it's like, it's very, 
I, I think what you said, going back to what you said, like you put this, you put one policy in place, but how does that affect everything else? And what else do you have to bring forward to match the reality that people are used to? Going back to what you had said earlier about the financing of the marijuana industry in Uruguay, how they were struggling because um, these pharmacies couldn't um, deposit their money anywhere. So one thing that I've been reading is that Canada's move to legalize marijuana might actually relieve some of the pressure on Uruguay. Because, let's face it, Uruguay was you know, the first country to, to take such an action. But at the same time, not to say who is Uruguay, but at the same time, there is a bit of that. Exactly. It's a tiny country. They have three million people. It's a bit in the shadows of Latin America in the international community, right? You don't hear about Uruguay that often. And when you do hear about it, you hear about Mujica. You hear about this guy who's a president who lives on a farm and donates 19% of his income to charity. 90? Oh, the numbers changed. (laughs) Um, Whereas Canada is coming into this as a bit of a bigger player in the international scene. Of course. And of, and of course, Uruguay's move to legalize marijuana, I don't think, I think it was really nice, really great, but, like, it it was Uruguay's move to legalize marijuana. And, like, that's what I mean, like, with Colorado in the States, you know, having dispensaries, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. Because it's the States, and, you know, it's, like, the countries that you look towards or look for advice and guidance and everything. Um, no, supposedly. Uh, mm, I forgot what was I saying. Oh yeah, there's this like infamous, infamous Vice video that I please like please watch it. I recommend everyone to watch it, which is like this guy. He's like I smoked weed with the president of Uruguay, and they're smoking together. I don't even know if the if Mujica smokes or not. And he, he goes, doesn't. He goes, I'm here smoking with the president of Colombia. I think. Yeah. And I saw that. <laughs> I honestly and 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 for the record, he wasn't high. He had just lit his his uh, his joint. Like he wasn't under the influence of nothing at this point. And I think that says exactly what you were saying. Um, no one really cares about Uruguay, and it is also what I was mentioning, like the the fantasy, the mystical, the mythical. You know, the Uruguay legalized weed, it's like you don't even know where you're standing. You literally confuse the president of a country, a small country granted, with the president of another country that has nothing, but absolutely nothing to do with Uruguay. Colombia and Uruguay, completely different things. You know, and it's just like, I can't even believe they didn't have the decency to edit that out. Because it was just... It was another take, right? Like, oh, I'm here with the president of Uruguay. But it's, we became or we become, or at least in that video clip, we become like this sort of, I would say like relic. Like, look at them. Look at this quaint little country legalizing weed. I can't even care enough or will enough to show the president of this country that I know where I'm at. I do think that one difference between Uruguay and Canada is that I think that Canada 
had more people to rely on as reference in the policymaking process mm -hmm. than Uruguay had. And you could hear this, um, I watched the exact same interview um, of Vias with Mujica, and there were a lot of things that Mujica was saying that were factually incorrect about marijuana. You know, um, you can't die of marijuana. You can't be addicted to marijuana. Unless you're really like level 200 pothead, it's really hard actually to develop an addiction to weed. And so there's a lot of, of these things that he was stating, which then it would make sense as to why regulation in, in Uruguay is, is still very strict. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, I think that Canada doesn't, um, doesn't have that issue because we've had more experience with it culturally um, and even uh, politically, to be completely honest. I mean, didn't Trudeau admit at one point in his campaign? I remember because this video went viral. He like admitted to one day, you know, smoking in his backyard with his pals, just passing a joint around. And so, yeah, so I do think that there is less mythification around weed in this process than there was in Uruguay. And I think it's what Steve was saying, how the, what was what the rhetoric and sort of the debate behind the legalization of weed in Uruguay and in Canada are different. So one stems more from a moral framework um, and sort of like, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? And what does it mean that we legalize it? Are we like enabling a bad, um, a bad habit? And I think in Canada, or at least in Toronto, it's more of a, what are the logistics of this, right? So should this be privately owned or should this be controlled by the LCBO? And what does that mean for, you know, the consumer, but also the market? Um, so it's like, yeah, like kind of, you know, what, what both of you are saying, like there's different perspectives and that's reflected in what Mujica said and sort of like these myths about weed and like maybe that miseducation about weed and also the very different attitude that uh, Trudeau has. And we'll see how it plays out this Wednesday, because I also don't think that comes midnight on October 16th will all of a sudden all of these bongs be whipped out and then Canada is going to be changed forever. I really think that people are just going to keep going on living the way they used to. Um, because as we were saying earlier, marijuana wasn't really dissimulated in the past. Um, not to the extent that it was in Uruguay, right? Here, it's really been starting to um, filter into the mainstream and into what's accepted socially. So I'm excited. Yeah, and, and I, I would, it would be interesting to look at the legalization of weed, like, back to back to like other sort of like liberal um big laws that were placed right like when abortion was legalized in Uruguay like, yeah the day after it's I don't think like a bunch of women just happened to run and go get abortions right but when uh gay marriage was legalized that's that is what happened right a lot of people went and got married that day um so it's like what's the what's the manifestation of weed being legal? Like, are yeah. a bunch of people going to get lit at Trinity Bellwoods or are things just going to continue happening as they have always been happening? So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out.
Once again, thank you for tuning in. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. If you have any ideas for future topics or would like to be a guest for one of our episodes, please reach out to us by contacting Berenice at las.cord at utoronto.ca. So that's las.cord at utoronto.ca. Our theme music was created by Juan José Loren, a third-year student here at the University of Toronto, in collaboration with Álvaro de Minaya, who is my father. Thanks, Dad. Um, That is all for today, and we will see you in two weeks. Happy Reading Week, everybody. Thank you.